0: Hello again party people, welcome to my second ever podcast. On this episode I'll be telling you about the time I got invited to Sweden to attend the premiere of a movie that I appeared in and needless to say the visit ended in total embarrassment. The heavy rocker who almost overnight came to hate me when I became a punk rocker in 1976 and I'll be telling you about the time I saw one of the world's most iconic rock stars totally bollock naked. I'll be talking about how I came to write a song called White No Sugar in the mid-1990s, which became a minor hit record for my band, The Clint Experience. And I like to close each of my podcasts with a track by an unsigned band or artist, and this episode will feature the debut single of a young man from North Wales whose name is Billy Bibby. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist, which accompanies each episode. On there you'll find some of the songs I'm talking about, or songs by some of the artists that I'm chatting about. My podcasts are brought to you by Distorted Productions and big thanks, as always, to our friends at Red's True Barbecue Manchester for helping us make this lovely thing happen. Okay, let's crack on. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. So, not a lot of people know this about me, right, but I've got a, a really small part, all right? It's a very small part, but to some people it's massive. I've got a small part in a film called 24 Hour Party People. I play the part of a train conductor called Ernie, and I play the part opposite Steve Coogan, who plays TV presenter and Factory Records boss Anthony H. Wilson. I was invited to be part of the film by the film's director, Michael Winterbottom, and we filmed the scenes one day in the summer of 2001 on a private train line in uh, Bury, just outside Manchester. So this train line has got quite a few vintage engines and, and carriages so There's lots of train spotters hanging out there every day. And it was like the perfect setting for recreating a particular scene, uh, which is set in the 1970s, where Anthony Wilson takes a very surreal train ride over the Pennines. This is something that's depicted in the film. Now, the film was a, a massive success, largely, I think, because of my inclusion in its cast. You know I mean? But factually, it's, it's a bit off target here and there, but it perfectly captures the utter madness of the period of that time, which became known as Manchester, and being as objective as I can, I'd say it's probably one of my top five films of all time, it's a brilliant film. So when the film premiered in England, they had a launch party in London and then one in Manchester the night after which I went to both of those, both great, all the stars were in there, and and the guys that played Happy Mondays, the band in the film, actually performed a live set and all that, so really prestigious occasions. When the film premiered in Sweden, I was invited over there to attend the screening, the premiere, and to DJ a, a party immediately after the event. And I was to be the only member of the cast present at the event, so it was quite a big deal, really. They made a fuss of me. They flew me and my wife out there to Stockholm, and they put us up in a, a wonderful hotel, all expenses paid. We were there for a few days. We were treated like royalty. And on the evening of the premiere, a, a posh car picked us up from the hotel, drove us up to this, this castle on a hill, which was, it was like the home to what I can only... Remember, it was like a luxurious art house cinema. Let's call it that, should we? And we walked along the red carpet there. You know, me all full of myself, waving like that. Boon army, yeah, Boon army. They couldn't tell what I was saying. F-t- photographers snapping away, and all paparazzi. I felt like I tell you what I felt like I felt like an indie Tom Cruise. That's what I felt like. Right? And after a, a couple of little interviews on the way in, we, we were ushered to our seats and that. And I was feeling pretty fucking smug by now. You know what I mean? I, I was the only one at, at cast. <laughs> There was a lot of people looking at me and pointing and all. They put us in our seats and, you know, very smiling at us and all that. And the film started. For the benefit of the Swedish people who might not be great at English or for Swedish people who might be great at English but struggle to understand our Mancunian accents in the film, the Swedish version of 24-hour party people is cut with Swedish subtitles throughout the film, right? So all along the bottom throughout the film is all the, all the words coming up in, in, in Swedish. You know what subtitles are? I don't have to explain them to you do so my first appearance in the film, it's about one hour, eighteen minutes and forty two seconds in, right? Somewhere around that I don't know, it's somewhere around one hour, eighteen minutes and forty two seconds, where the train sequence starts. So it's Anthony H. Wilson, played by Steve Coogan. He climbs on board this train during a blizzard on the Pennines, and Ernie, the train conductor, slash Clint Boone, me, shows him to a nice seat by the window. It's a brief little part. It, it's brief, but it's pivotal. It's pivotal to the success of the movie, in my opinion. <laughs> now, the best bit, though, is later in the film where Coogan, as Wilson, he's doing a voiceover and he's pointing out some of the cameo appearances. So, like, real-life celebrities who actually appear in the film. Like, here's the, the actual Anthony Wilson playing the part of the TV director. Here's Manny out of Stone Rose. He's playing a sound engineer. Here's Mark Smith of the Voice. You get the idea. So he's pointing us all out. And all the while, these subtitles are scrolling away across the bottom like that, blah, 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 blah. Anthony Wilson, blah, 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 Manny, blah, 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 Stone Roses, blah, 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 And then the part of the film comes up where Coogan, as Wilson, he says my name on screen, he points out who I am. Now, at the UK premieres, like in March, I found it quite an emotional moment. You know, hearing Steve Coogan say the words, and this chap here out in Spiral it's what's his name? Clint Boone, unquote. I mean, can you imagine having your name in a big film like that? spoken by somebody of Coogan's calibre, it was quite goosebump, you know what I mean? So I'm there in this Swedish art house cinema, intensely excited, because, apologies if you've just tuned in by that, it's not what you think, if you've just tuned in that's going to sound really dodgy innit? It's not what you think. I'm there in this, I'm there in a Swedish art house cinema, intensely excited, waiting for this bit to come up, and it comes up, Steve Coogan's saying my name. But then I see it in, in slow motion, the subtitles at the bottom of the screen, blah, 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 blah. And then my name, which they've spelt wrong, blah, 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 blah. Clint Bourne. B-O-N-E, Clint Bourne, going across the bottom of the screen like that, in Stockholm, in an art house cinema. I was devastated, I was devastated. My wife says to this day, I literally sunk down in my chair, because people were looking over at me, people know I was in there. I've been doing all the Boone Army on Red K hey, Boone Army, Come on, Sweden, Boone Army's in town, come on. And it's not something that they can correct it when they've done them subtitles like that. They're burnt onto the image, aren't they, onto the film? It's permanent. They're not going to go back and spend thousands of, what is it, kroner, euros or something, re-editing the film because some Herbert from Manchester who plays a little part in it is a bit upset about a slight misspelling. They're not going to do it, are they? Even for an indie Tom Cruise like me... They're not going to do it. Anyway, so I'm there. I pretended I'd not noticed. The film ended. Everyone stood up and clapped. People were turning to me and clapping and laughing. You know, I me. Mean? My wife pretended she wasn't with me. <laughs> but it's funny to think in it that to the Swedish masses, I'll be known for eternity as Clint Bourne. You know, the man who likes to dress up in funny uniforms for hours films. My new is probably an alternative career idea, though. There, there? When you think about, I should get a new. Business card made. Flexible and affordable actor available. We'll consider anything. Scandinavian arthouse movies of speciality. Contact Clint Bourne. When the punk rock revolution happened in Britain, I was sixteen stroke, seventeen. I was an art student, so 1976, 77. And I was immediately smitten by punk rock. Everything about it appealed to me, apart from the spitting, which I found totally grotesque. And the anarchy thing as well, I found that a bit and the bit about the Queen and all that. So apart from those little points, I found punk perfect for me. And there was a guy in the year above me at college, he was a few years older than me as well, and his name was Gary. And he was totally obsessed with Led Zeppelin, this, this Gary, right? And we were all right, we got on well, you know what I mean? We just, we were at each other and all that. I was a teddy boy at the time, I was into my 50s rock and roll, before Punk came along. So I was no threat to Gary, was just, I was just this kid with a funny ear doing that. And then, when Punk Rock arrived on our shores, for some reason it absolutely rattled Gary's cage. Now Led Zepp obviously stood for everything that the punks were out to destroy, you know what I mean? Gary picked up on this from day one. The end of 1976, it was. So when I turned up at college one day, art college, in my ripped drainpipe jeans and my dirty white pumps and my safety pins in my shirt and a big splash of white paint up the back of my Oxfam blazer, he's like, That Gary, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, What do you mean? He says, Why are you dressed like that? I said, I'm a punk. He said, You're a what? I said, I'm a punk. He said, I hate punks and I hate you. Like that, proper, like just turned on me overnight because I was a punk locker. Because I was the first punk locker, to pop up on Gary's radar, I took the full force of his wrath and his venom. And at first it was just verbal stuff, you know, like, look at you, fucking dickhead. Look at you. But then it developed into like the occasional stranglehold, you know what I mean? Bit of a dead leg. How that you scruffy bastard. All in good humour, though, you know what I mean? All in good humour, of course, Your Honor. But as the weeks went by, I started to get scared of listening to the news headlines each morning because throughout most of 77, we were never too far away from another controversial tabloid headline involving the nation's punk rockers and the, the dirty doings. And on a punk rock news day, I'd get it in the neck off Gary, the, the, the rocker. For every Johnny Rotten does this or Captain Sensible did that, I'd get my ears pulled a little bit more by Gary, the heavy rocker. Stranglers bring on strippers at Finsbury Park gig. I remember that happening. That was, um, I think it's Finsbury Park. And it happened over the weekend, Monday morning. News on radio. The controversial punk rock band, The Stranglers, brought on strippers at Finsbury Park. It's like that. And I'd be like that over my Kellogg's. Me. Oh, no. My dad would be like that. What's up? Stranglers brought some strippers on it, on stage at Finsbury Park. And my dad says, Gary won't like that, will he? And I'd be like, I'm proper going to get it in the neck off Gary today, Dad. Well, you will be a punk rocker, won't you? You will be a punk rocker. I think the day that Sid Vicious smashed his bass guitar over a, a, a punter's head at a gig in Texas, I think I just stayed off. Altogether, I think probably had a week off that week because I just I knew that I'd get it off Gary, and I do think about Gary occasionally, Gary the angry rocker, whether he's still out there or whether he's angered himself into an early grave or whatever, or whether he actually got into punk later on in life. Because I forgot to mention at the time that Led Zepp have always been a band that I'm totally into. I just got distracted by punk rock for a little bit. If you're listening, Gary, thank you for downloading this podcast. Forty years later. You know- When I got married in September 2005 to my lovely wife, Charlotte, I asked my friend, Joy Division and New Order legend, Peter Hook, to be my best man, and he kindly said yes. That would have been bad, wouldn't it, if he'd said no. I wonder if he'd still be mates today, But he said no. Probably would, actually. So as tradition generally dictates, I stayed at his house the night before the wedding, so that gives the future Mrs Boone time to hang out with her mum and her sister and friends and get ready for the big day. So I'm at Huckie's house for night. And on the morning of the wedding, I got up and headed for the bathroom to get a shower and, and everything that you do on the day you're getting married. And I got in the bathroom and realised that there was no towels. So I, I went and looked round, couldn't find any. I didn't want to disturb Huckie. Went through some cupboards that I found no sign of a towel. So I went in search of some. Now it's a big house, Huckie's house. I looked in various cupboards that I found, some small rooms, a couple of annexes, a vestibule, a dungeon. <laughs> so basically, no sign of any towels, no sign of anybody in the house. And I thought, oh no. I'm going to have to knock on Huckie's bedroom door. I knew where his bedroom was, but I didn't want to disturb him, you know what I mean? He's in there with his missus. I didn't know if they're either up or not. I'm up early because it's my wedding day. I didn't want to knock on. So I carried on looking, scouting about. I, like, I must look like a burglar. If anybody had seen me, I'd have been like a burglar. And eventually I thought, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to knock on his bedroom door and just ask him, so... I knock sound dead quiet like that. Like that. No answers. I did it again. Like, okay, hey there, man. Okay, okay, okay. Are you there, mate? Still no answers. So I knock a bit louder like that. Okay, okay, hey there. I don't think he he's probably heard me. He'll be putting his dressing gown on now and all that. Give him a minute. So I wait a bit. Another gentle knock. Okay. I do with a towel, man, you know what I mean, I'm getting married a bit. And I starts getting a bit worried now. Okay, okay, I need a towel. Are you there, It Suddenly the door swings open, there's Peter Oock, bass playing legend, the icon, bollock naked, stood there like a fucking Viking, a proud naked Viking, hands on his it's like that, stood there legs apart, and he goes, what do you want? I'm like that, covering my eyes, like, I need a towel, Pete. He says, I've left one on the end of your bed, you knobhead. I said, oh, I'm sorry mate, I'm sorry mate He says, what time's wedding? I said, two hours He said, right, I'd better get dressed then, not I? I? said, yeah, you better I'd Put that away, get dressed <laughs> I'll tell you this about the legend that is Peter Up It's not just his bass guitar that hangs really low down That's Joy Division. Love will tear us apart. And who should I have on the phone? But my old mate and best man, Peter Huck, How are you doing? Okay.
1: <laughs> a little bit frazzled today, mate. I have to say.
0: What is, it? is it is it good frazzled or bad frazzled?
1: Well, I don't know. It's a toss up at the moment. We're um, we're right in the middle of doing it. the Sassiendo classical yeah. thing and um, getting the backing track done because you're copying 20 songs, 22 songs actually, I think it is, and they're all different genres. They're all different styles. They're all different sounds.
0: Is it full orchestra playing it all?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a 70-piece orchestra playing along. So they're doing, like, the melodies and the hooks, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. That's the easy bit, yeah. actually, because they're great. They're like robots. They just read it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the other bit that we've got to sit and program and do all the vocal triggers and then get the vocalists. It's quite a job. It really is a job. And it's funny because it's like one of them things, you know, you go two steps forward, one steps back, and it's just like, ah...
0: At the gigs? Are you going to be doing the conductor thing at the front with the baton? You know?
1: No, no, no. We've got we've got a professional for that. I'm warming up. Yeah, I'm singing one song so far, and playing on one song. Uh, I suppose I'm the executive producer. Cool. I'm doing the warm up, um, before and after DJing. So yeah, it's good. I mean, it's it's bloody. know, oh, it's been hard work. It Really has been hard work. Yeah. And, and it's weird, because you can't visualise it until you put all the pieces together. You don't get it till then, you see. So that's what's weird about it.
0: Such a groundbreaking idea. It's going to take a while to establish it, and then when everybody else is copying it in five years' time, you've done all the groundwork already, haven't you? So, do,
1: you know, do you know what the oddest thing is, though, mate, is, is that we've sold out three gigs,
0: yeah? Yeah.
1: And we've not done it.
0: <laughs> you've not done it yet? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it's brilliant. I've never been in that position before. That's pressure, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's been, and it's like getting all the pieces together. I mean, you know, normally with the light, but when we play these seven of us, we call ourselves a Magnificent Seven because we go all around the world, play everywhere, you know, we're doing big gigs, four or five thousand people everywhere, all over the place. Only seven of us, right? On stage, on this hacienda, there's going to be 109 wow. on stage. And yeah. it's, it's so big, you know, I'm not used to it. And it's weird. It is. It's it's, it's, it's very exciting but terrifying in equal measure. It makes your wedding, mate, look like a a double. It really does.
0: Talking about things that are so big and terrifying, I was just telling the story about the time I saw you totally naked on the morning of my wedding. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> don't worry mate, a lot of people have seen me totally naked, it's um, it's part, I don't know where, it is. I, don't know where I got that nature-ish streak, uh, no no pun intended there either, uh, from, because in Salford it was so cold, you never really spent much time naked because you would have frozen to death, maybe that's what I'm taking advantage of now that yeah, I've got yeah. central eating, because I didn't get central eating until I was 23. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I did get an outside toilet, an inside toilet. I got it at nineteen. Yeah,
0: can you remember we get your first colour telly.
1: First colour telly was oh my god, that will have been that that would have been quite early actually. Your mum loved TV for some strange reason, and so did my dad. And oh. we had one of the first black and white ones in nineteen sixty one. Wow,
2: well, amazing! Get that, and
1: I remember being in Jamaica when I was a kid and watching JFK. Yeah. get assassinated on a black and white TV in Jamaica when I lived there. Yeah. And then when we came back to England, we got another one. And people used to come round to our house in groups to watch TV, because <laughs> we were one of the only people that had TV. You know what I mean? It sounds really weird now. You know, everything you take for granted, you tell your kids about it, your kids have got. And then the life that we lived, which doesn't seem that long ago, yeah. was completely different, wasn't it? Well like, I just say to my dad, can we get a remote control? And he'd go, no, we don't need one. I've got you. <laughs> 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 he just poked me or kicked me when he, when he wanted me to turn the channel
0: over yeah. well, amazing. <laughs> anyway so my wedding day was uh, just over 10 years ago you know now that's uh, that's flown by isn't it oh my god 10 years ago no man. way you know what i've got
1: here on my shelf i've actually got the bullhorn that i bought to um uh, make sure everybody could hear me oh yeah when i was right? doing the master ceremonies and i've still got it
0: here the, the bullhorn, it still works. I remember the uh, controversial speech she did, the best man's speech at the dinner. <laughs> We're, we won't go into it, we won't give any details away, but I just remember the staff that was serving there being a bit sh- shocked at some of the subject matter.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not too sure we could even do that as a podcast game. No, I'm not,
0: I'm not going into it at <laughs> No, all I mean, because...
1: it, was, it was a lovely day, because I remember when you took the DJ to Newcastle when I met Charlie. Uh, and she was gorgeous, and she was wonderful, and she seemed to suit you down to the ground. And it is very, very nice. I mean, I know you've had your ups and downs, and it's been tough like us all. You know, we all go through that, don't we? But it's really nice to see because, you know, it's it's a sad thing, isn't it, in this world? Because you get used to everybody breaking up, and marriage is not lasting. It's, it's like one of those modern diseases, isn't yeah, it?
0: Yeah, yeah. We've had tragedies like everybody else has had in their lives, and it just, it's brought us closer together, so we're in a, a great place at the moment. So. Mm-hmm. Good. Know,
1: it's, it's interesting, though, because Bex always says to me, you know, she always says the reason we, we've lasted so long, is because you're away all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And true, I bet man. Charlie says that to you, because yeah, we're well, always working, you know. Well,
0: it's it's all changed now, because I'm, uh, I'm not doing the radio show every day, so I'm doing a lot more work at home, and there was... Uh, Three days last week where I didn't have to go out of the house and I, I grew a beard. She came home one day and I sat there with a beard in my pyjamas.
1: on oh, <laughs> And tell me this, is, the, is a podcast the digital equivalent of an allotment?
0: That's a real good way of putting it, that. A digital equivalent of an allotment. It is. It's where you're going just dick about for a couple of hours and Potter. tell your wife tell your wife it'll probably it'll pay off i mean as
1: a as a historian mate you you are part of manchester's history aren't you
0: yeah. and it's a hell of a history yeah it really is and it's a, it's a great city to be part of isn't it Right, well listen, so you've got a busy year with the Hacienda Classical and you're doing a lot of DJing as well still, or you're not doing so much now. Yeah, well I've, start, I've started DJing again, which is nice.
1: I mean, I'm still recovering from the shoulder operation, to be honest. Right. So I can't play at the moment and um, it turned out to be a lot worse than we thought. So the recovery time went from four weeks to three months. Uh, I can't lift anything. The guy said to me, you can't lift anything heavier than a pint of beer. <laughs> and I said, well, that's no use because I don't drink <laughs> cheese, mate. So there they am, there, I can't even lift a pint of beer. Really? You know what I mean? So, no, it's, it's weird. It's a, a combination of uh, old age and repetitive strain injury. It's probably what you've got. I mean, I'm surprised you haven't got it combined in the ivories. People think we have it easy, don't they? If only they knew.
0: Yeah, you know what? I think I think a lot of my followers now realise that I'm just I'm at it every minute of the day. So I think you're a bit like me. People know that you're industrious and uh, people respect you for it. So
1: well, I mean, it's such a great job, isn't it? You know what I mean? Both both me and you, blessed. And every time we used to go out DJing together, because you taught me to DJ, didn't you? Which I'm very very grateful for. And yeah. um, it, it's like you always have such a great time. You can never believe how bloody lucky you are. Yeah, it's and it's true. whenever you start moaning. You know, and you sit there and someone will say to you, shut it. You know, some people have to work for a living. Yeah, you're like, Oh my God, yeah, you know, it's true, isn't it? We are very lucky boys.
0: I, I count my blessings every day because all the things I used to do for nothing, because I love doing them, I now get paid for. So being in a band, you, 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 nobody, nobody starts a band to make money.
1: <laughs> it's very true. The the only people that start bands to make money are managers. <laughs> it's
2: true, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I mean, certainly. I've never met a musician who's ever said to me, you ever wanted to form a group to make money, it is to make music. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's nice. I was, I was judging a talent competition last night. And uh, it, it's great to see, even now, how many people play fantastic music. Because sometimes I forget, and even DJing, I forget. You know, you've got so much music at your fingertips, but you forget that someone sat there and made
0: it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You haven't done it
1: created it and that is it is a real gift you know we're still actually in quite short supply so enough backslapping, me and you
0: yeah <laughs> enough of uh, enough of blowing each other's trumpets I <laughs>
1: uh, hey don't start on trumpets again I've got enough of this classical thing mate it'll last me a lifetime
0: <laughs> right well listen it's great talking to you man and uh, hopefully see you soon lots of love to you and the family yeah
1: alright Well, you take care of yourself and good luck
0: alright okay see you later brother bye bye So, this is the part of the podcast where I like to take a song that I've written at some time in my career and explain to you how it came about, what it's about, what inspired it, sort of thing. One of his songs, White Nose Sugar, it had a a working title of Senile Street, believe it or not, for a couple of years before I actually finished it off. It was a very basic keyboard melody that I'd recorded into a synth, and a few words inspired by seeing like down-and-out type blokes around Manchester's Piccadilly Gardens muttering to the pigeons. You know the kind of man about, don't you? There's this one guy in particular in Manchester who used to spend most days running up and down Market Street, often with his shirt off, shouting really loudly at pigeons, right? You'd be looking in a shop window like that on your own, and you'd have a quick, quick shuff about, and you'd hear this... And you'd totally shit yourself! Pigeons scattering everywhere, feathers! (laughs) Anyway, so, he's the kind of bloke that inspired the start of this track when it was called Senile Street. So around 1995, 1996, I was writing and recording various tracks, which would eventually become the first album by the Clint Experience. I did two albums towards the end of the the 90s. And I came across the old senile street idea and decided to reshape it and complete it, make it into a new song. And at the time, the internet was still relatively new. It It was a new thing to the man in the street. And technology was progressing incredibly fast, as it usually does. And I wanted to write a song that, captured that moment in time when the world was just waking up to this this new revolution, this marvellous new thing, the World Wide Web. And in the song, people are communicating with each other around the world and starting to use this, this brand new concept, brand new in the mid-90s of the internet cafe bars. And at the time when I wrote the song, Manchester literally had a handful, I think it had three. And I, I named, well, I named all three of them in the song. I named Dry, Atlas and Dukes too. They were the only places where you could, you know, hang out through the day, have coffee, you know, have a snack, check your internet stuff, whatever. And then at night there'd be a DJ, and then you could stay and get drunk and whatever else. It was a new concept. Dry was the first one. In fact, Dry was one of the first ones outside London, I think. So Dry, Atlas, Duke's Night Two were the only coffee bars. They're all in that song. And I also referenced my personal addiction to coffee in the song as well—the fact that I would constantly have coffee with me wherever I was going, even when I was driving. I'd have a, a cup of coffee, so the line is taking me way high when I ride on the highway. That's that's referenced in the coffee and also the newly named information superhighway that everybody's talking about. And to this day, I still like my coffee, white, no sugar, like it says in the song. And the song closes with a, a catchphrase coined by my good friend, Mark Radcliffe. And we'd recently worked on a TV show together called Mark Radcliffe's NWA, where the NWA bit stood for Northwest Arts. I think it was Arts. It might have been Attitude. But Mark hosted the show every week and I was his house band, so I sat there constantly by his side throughout the show at my organ, playing the odd jingle and doing the opening and closing theme tunes. And each week he'd close the show by saying, so until next week, Mr. Boone, play that tune! At which point I'd burst into action singing and playing and he dance around me like a couple of Muppets. It was great. And I adapted the theme tune into another Clint Boone Experience track I'm good at that recycling thing, aren't I? <laughs> you know, you write a theme tune, make it into a pop song as well. Uh, it was called Push Me Right Down, so also featured on the debut album uh, by the Clint Boone Experience, which is an album called The Compact Guide to Pop Music and Space Travel. And the band that I put together to finish the two albums I'd made and, and two of the songs were a bunch of lovely people, incredibly fantastic musicians. White No Sugar eventually got released as a, a single in the summer of 98, and it got re-released in 99. It became a bit of a minor hit. It got me and the band onto the what was then a massive TV show, Chris Evans' TFI Friday. We did it the same night as Iggy Pop. And sadly, the band stopped working together soon after that. We'd had a, an horrific motorway accident in April of 99, where our tube was literally overturned on a motorway in Scotland. And although we were back in action within two or three months, the subsequent trauma experienced by some of the band members just made it too difficult to... Tour, to go back on the road and to travel in conventional ways and I was so privileged to have worked with those people in the Clint experience Richard Stubbs, Catherine Stubbs, Matt Hayden, Tony Thompson, Stephen Hawkes, the rest of our gang, Alfie Board, Danny Savile, Carl Chadwick, Spike the manager, Olin Jones, Graham Smith, Tim Nalampy and Sarah Cluderay aka Opera Chick. An amazing bunch of people who sadly couldn't work together for reasons beyond our control uh, after that event and I think about them all the time. I hear white, no sugar by the Clint Brewing Experience. Me way
2: high. Like me no sugar.
0: The Last week I talked about my little boy Cassius, Cassius Rudy Boone, who's five years old, and how he still loves to sleep with his mum and dad, and how we love to have him in there. He's, we're big fans of co sleeping, all our kids have slept with us until they've decided to move out to their own room and and thankfully all the other kids have moved out so we've not got a million kids in between us. This week I'd like to talk about the the birth of Hector, my boy who's now nine, Hector Angel Boone. Me and Mrs Boone are big fans of having babies at home, fans of independent midwifery, we're fans of water birth, we're fans of natural ways of bringing kids into the world and of raising them. When Hector was born, we had uh, an independent midwife and we had um, a water birth. We had a birthing pool in the, the bedroom for two weeks leading up to the birth and two weeks after, which is a great thing. You can The mother gets to relax in the, in the warm water you know, in the days leading up to the birth and subsequently you've got two weeks of relaxation. After, with baby, or whoever's visiting, we literally have little pool parties in, the, in this little birthing pool in the bedroom when it's baby time in, in the boon house. The night that Hector arrived, our midwife was delayed getting back to us and he came a lot quicker than we thought he was going to come. He came really quick. One minute we were watching Coronation Street, the next minute things were starting to happen. Our midwife had gone home to feed her cat. We didn't know anything was going to happen that quickly. And literally my wife jumped into the birthing pool. She said, I can feel something coming out. I said, it's probably a poo, she said. She said, it's not a poo. I said, it'll be a poo. And I I leaned over and had a look and it, it was a baby's head. So I pulled my clothes off quick as I could got in the birthing pool and the baby was born like Taboon, slid out into my arms in the water and we just had the most idyllic or all together before people started to arrive at the house. It was like we were the only people in the house and it was beautiful and people were saying to us afterwards, we're not scared and we weren't scared, we knew what we were doing. There's an hospital not far away, we had a mobile phone by the pool, if it have been a problem we could have had an ambulance with minutes. It was the most idyllic moment in our life, that that male and female just delivering their baby, themselves, into the world with absolutely no medical intervention whatsoever and thankfully we didn't need it mum and baby were fine and it was a beautiful moment. I would say to anybody that is expecting a baby, do look into home birth, do look into water birth and read about a thing called lotus birth as well which is another chapter altogether quite a fascinating procedure where you can leave the placenta attached to the baby and after two or three days it'll separate itself and in the meantime you treat it with lavender oil, you put salt on it you keep it wrapped up to dry it out and once you know about lotus birth, it removes all that panic that most first time dads to be have and probably a lot of mums to be about when do you cut the cord, how do you cut the cord, what happens if you get it wrong, what happens if you get the timing wrong, it do not matter you can leave it on as long as you want as long as there's no serious medical problems going on, the placenta stays in place. It will separate itself at the, at the navel. The umbilical cord will just pop off after three days. We didn't do that with Hector. We did it with Cassius, who's our five-year-old. But because I knew about Lotus birth, when Hector arrived unexpectedly, it took away any sense of panic whatsoever. And that's what made it such an idyllic thing. We just sat, waited in the water. Our family arrived, midwife arrived. And then eventually we did cut the cord and uh, we got on with things. Do look into it when when the time comes, read about it. It's not for everybody, it suits us, it doesn't suit everybody and there's no way we're going to go around preaching that this is what you need to do. It's it's our thing, it's what me and my wife like to do. But it's uh, it's, it's worth reading about these things. Own birth, water birth and lotus birth. There you go, that's this week's Boone's Birthing Advice Service out of the way. Uh, and finally... <laughs> And finally, what I like to do at the end of every podcast is use it as a little platform to help uh, the next generation of new musicians, new bands, new singer-songwriters onto the ladder and get started. Last week it was a brilliant new band from Chesterfield called the Time Sellers. This week a bit of an unusual one in that the artist I'm about to play is not exactly starting from scratch, but he is unsigned, uh, he's not got any deals yet. I believe he's got a, a big future ahead of him. His name's Billy Bibby. He was born in Accrington. I moved to London when he was eight and met a young kid called Van McCann. Uh, they formed a band together called Catfish in the Bottom. Men. Billy was with the band for seven years. He left in 2014. Uh, since then, he's been writing his own material, writing new material. He's put a great band together. They're about to go out and do a 20-day tour of the UK. And the track that I'm going to play will be Billy Bibby's debut single. It's a track called Waiting For You, Very reminiscent to me of some of the early Stiff Records uh, tunes that came out between 76 and 79. People like Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and Brinsley Schwartz. This is very reminiscent of that era. It's classic British songwriting, I reckon. Hopefully Billy will go on to enjoy the sort of success that his mates in Catfish are enjoying. Uh, But have a listen to this now. I'll speak to you next week. Thanks again for listening. If you like the podcast, subscribe if you've not already done so. And I'll leave you with this. It is Billy Bibby with Waiting For You. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes.